Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to praying about racial strife, especially between Christians. I'm the host, Isaac Adams. You're listening to season four of the show, and I have a guest here with me, preached at my local church yesterday, but he's the pastor of College Park Church in Indianapolis and author of Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. I have Mark Rogop with me. Uh, Isaac, good to be here, man. And nice job on the last name pronunciation. You I'm actually really proud proud of myself you killed it i, I just saw, <laughs> i saw you smile with like a, a heartfelt satisfaction like boom all right close the program it's over uh i was quite i mean it was like it's like when you're uh reading a genealogy publicly oh, you're like horrible. i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go confident right. and yeah. people will assume it's right so Shalil will be a little right? that's, that's right, right. and <laughs> yeah that's right that's right um mark thank you for being here uh glad to be sitting in here in the room with you brother i said a moment ago uh we're strangers kind of we have mutual friends strangers uh, you and I are, but also brothers at the same time. Amen. And that's the paradox yeah. of being Christians, isn't it? It is. Uh, so I'm thankful that you're on the show and we get to pray to our Father together soon. But before that, before a vertical, com- uh, vertically speaking to God, let's speak to each other first. Um, this may surprise some of our listeners, Mark, but we're not going to talk about race first. Uh, before we talk about race, talk to me about lament and what you understand the scripture to teach about, I'm going to steal the sermon title that you had yesterday, The Grace of Lament. Yeah. So lament is something I kind of backed into because of my own personal experience. And uh, I was a seminary trained pastor and just found this language in the Bible um, sort of by accident as I tried to work out my pain, started to pastor people. And lament is all throughout the Bible. Uh, in fact, I was just having a conversation with someone today about this very issue. He was like, lament? Is there a lot of lament in the Bible? And I said, actually, yeah, a third of the Psalms are lament, at least, maybe even more. Um, it looks so, like Lamentations, you know, one of the longest uh, laments uh, in the canon. You also have Jesus who's lamenting on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22. And even the Apostle Paul, when he says, you know, we all like sheep, um, what, no, when he says we're being slaughtered, um, like sheep being led to the slaughter, he quotes Psalm 44 in the midst of Romans 8. So lament is a an important language as people talk to God about their pain and their struggle. And a simple definition that I've used in my book is that lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So it's a prayer. It happens in the context of hurt and sorrow. And it's directional. It's meant to, it's meant to lead us somewhere. And all laments have you have four elements uh, to them. So since it's poetry and music, you can't linearly map it out 100% all the time. But usually they have a, a turning to God in prayer, laying out our complaints, asking boldly for him to help us, and then choosing to trust. So turn, complain, ask, and trust are sort of the fourfold um, elements that I think make up lament in the Bible. Mm, amen. Now... Uh, we're going to leave lament for a second. Talk to me about race. So our listeners can't see you. Uh, you're white. You're, I'm just going to say this, approaching middle age. I am. Approaching Careful. is a kind word. Though, that is. Right? That is. Uh, yeah, I got more gray than brown hair. <laughs> the yeah. Bible says it's a good thing. Though. Yeah. Help me understand what you understand about race and the importance of Christians understanding it. Yeah, I think foundationally, Christians and the church in particular is really the one place that of all the places in culture 
where there's actually hope for some kind of racial reconciliation, it should be and it could be the church. And unfortunately, though, that hasn't been the case. Um, and so when I look at the Bible, it says really provocative and compelling things like in Colossians you know, chapter 3, that here, here in the church, there is not... Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And those were revolutionary words in Jesus's day um, and in the early church. Additionally, you know, in the city of Antioch, the, the mission hub of the forward advance of the gospel after Jerusalem, it was a divided, segregated city. And when the church takes its roots in Antioch, there are people gathering together that the city of Antioch doesn't even know what to do with. What do we call these people? They're not Jews, they're not Greeks. What, what do we call them? Let's call them Christians. And so to me, the race conversation is really vital, not just to how we understand the gospel, the application of the gospel, but even for the church's witness, because the church should be the place that our love for Jesus creates a common identity that gets underneath the most strident and divisive identities in the context of the culture. And that has often happened in the context of the church. Um, historically, unfortunately, in our nation's history, that's not been the case in the story of the church in the United States. So just hopping on this text real quick, uh, you're talking about the context of the church. I think of John 13, 35, but this, the world will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, really interesting. So the witness of our love uh, and uh, what we're seeing is uh, Jesus is even like, and if you love those who are like you, what good is that? Even sinners do that. Uh, but if you love one another, that's a powerful thing. And then in John 17, him, he's, he's praying uh, for us who heard through the apostles that we would be one. Why? So that it might testify to the world that the Father sent Jesus. So there, so I see that clear connection uh, to the church and the love for one another within the church and its connection to our witness. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, this is a, I didn't tell you about this question, but since you read it, I'm going to ask you about it. Um, Colossians 3, a lot of people are going to go there, or the text in Galatians 3, or Colossians, I, I what you read in Colossians? Colossians 3. Yeah. yeah, Colossians 3. A lot of people use that text uh, and say, uh, then, Pastor Mark, yeah, it says there's none of this stuff, so why are we talking about this? Isn't this divisive? Aren't those, uh, aren't these categories, they don't exist in the church, it's just Jesus. Well, that, I mean, so that's an interesting thing to say, except that the end of the Bible doesn't even end that way. It's, it shows Jesus, it's part of the beauty of the redemption, is that Jesus comes and standing before him are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's not as though the Bible levels ethnicity and says this doesn't exist. It's not like the Bible says, I see everybody all the same in terms, I don't see any different differentiation. On the contrary, it seems that the gospel is most attractive and beautiful when it goes across the barriers that in society and culture would seem to utterly separate people. And it's supposed to be this Christian identity that gets underneath all other identities. And so I'm, I'm a first generation American Dutch white guy, right? That's who I am. I'm tall. Um, I have all the characteristics of the Dutch. I'm cheap. I all those things, okay? A little bit intense. Um, but underneath all that, I'm a Christian. Amen. And that changes. So that Christianity then infuses my Dutchness, right. or at least it's supposed to. Right. The problem is that for many of us, let's take it for me, I allow my Dutchness to infuse my Christianity. And it's got to be the other way around. And then as a result of that, then I think I can relate to others. And so talking about this... Um, 
has not been the church in the United States problem. We have, it's, it, the, our challenge has not been talking about this too much. The challenge is we've, I think, not known how to talk about it or not been intentional enough about how to have the conversation. And when you talk about one other text that comes to mind, when you talk about um, relativizing or infusing or Christ infusing and being the foundation of all these other parts of our identity and Christ being uh, the main part of it, uh, I just think of Philippians 3. It's so clear. Paul says, I was a, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Right. Uh, I was I was a zealot. I was a persecutor of the church. I was this. I was that. All these identifiers of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and then he says, "But for the sake of Christ, I've suffered the loss of all things, uh, that I may gain, that I may know Christ in the power of His resurrection." Uh, and then on another text, he'll just say, uh, "To the Hebrew, First Corinthians nine. To the Hebrews, I became a Hebrew." And really interesting text. But I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to my next uh, question for you. So let's combine my first two questions. Questions one and two. Lament Lament and race. How does understanding the grace of lament apply to the topic of race? So you just preach Psalm 77. Right. And does that apply to racial issues? Combine the two for me, if there is a combination to be made. There, there are a couple combinations. Um, the first would be is that when you understand lament, it helps to tune your heart to hear the laments of others. So when brothers are in pain or sisters are in pain because of grief or sorrow of any kind, including pains that relate to uh, race-oriented issues in their lives, instead of being quickly dismissive of those and kind of jumping into your historical, cultural narrative, whatever that is, we all have those, Lament, if you enter into it, you hear something different. It's like it tunes your heart. Secondly, it also allows, I think, for those who are wounded or feel the um, heavy weight of opposition, oppression, or they, they, they deal with an issue that feels like it's incredibly unjust. Lament talks about that all the time. Uh, Psalm 94 says, can wicked rulers be aligned with you, those who frame injustice by statute? Mm. Um, so uh, the laments are really helpful because you read them. Uh, another one that I'm teaching on here soon to pastors, oh, that I had wings and could fly away like a dove and be at rest. Mm. Like you see that in the Bible and you're like, man, straight up, that's how I feel. Mm. And so lament gives what us... What was the text that you just read? So that was Psalm 55. So in Psalm 94 was the first one, Psalm 55 was the second one. As well, Psalm 55 says, his words were smooth as butter, but war was in his heart. Mm. So it, lament just gives you language to go, oh, that... That just is really helpful for me to hear. Additionally, it gives me a place to go with uh, with my pain. Finally, uh, lament is the language of exiles, and it's a subtle form of protest. It's where we protest against the brokenness of the world, where we join one another in saying, "Brother, this isn't right," and I'm sad along with you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna enter into this season of mourning with you. I'm going to be quiet. I'm gonna pray with you. I'm going to lament with you. And even though it's messy, even though it isn't linear, and even though it kind of freaks me out a little bit, I'm going to stay in it because apparently lament is important enough that a third of the Psalms record this kind of minor key song. Um, oh man, so many things I want to hop in on that. But uh, am I ruining a big surprise to say you're writing specifically about race and lament? 
Like, is your publisher about to come after you? I have no idea. No, they're not going to come after you. Yeah, uh, for sure. But, you know, no, yeah, come after me, I guess. No. <laughs> Tell uh, me about yeah. that project. Yeah, so while I was writing the first book on lament, there was also a movement of racial reconciliation and growing diversity at our church that was happening. And um, we did some things intentionally to see that take place, both in terms of leadership and focus and really trying to dial into this. We also, in God's providence, had some people come to our church who were theologically oriented oriented, culturally aware, um, folks who are minorities, and just started saying, hey, can we dialogue about this? And and so both providentially and somewhat by intention, um, and then also just demographics around our church, uh, we've been able to reach in a more, or a more circular way instead of just to a particular northern suburb. Um, as I'm putting the material together on Lament, I'm just thinking, man, this actually really applies here. Um, and uh, here being this conversation in, about in race. the conversation of race, yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then I took a group of fifty leaders on a civil rights vision trip. Think of it like a pilgrimage. So, in a couple weeks from now, we'll go on the second one. We go to Montgomery and Birmingham and Selma and Memphis, and we study a lament psalm in the morning, and then we write our own, and then we pray them out loud together, and then we have conversations about racial reconciliation. It completely changes the tone of the conversation. You study it in the Bible, you write your own, and suddenly it's like, man, I'm with this brother, even though I may not understand his experience. Like, I just heard him talk to God and heard him weep, and like, I love my brother. And so it creates this lament um, uh, heart language that draws you into the conversation. So the working title of my book is Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. So lament doesn't solve all the problems. Praying doesn't solve all the problems. But it at least has the potential, I think, to cause people to lean into one another, not away from one another, as so many other things tend to be divisive and and create factions. Lament has a possibility of actually building a bridge that people can walk across. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I say we say this often on United We Pray, but if we're going to be involved in this work of racial justice, racial reconciliation, we must do more than pray, yeah. but we cannot do less. That's a good word. Um, that might show up somewhere. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come after you just like your publisher. No, no, he's been good footnote. Just a couple thoughts on what you just said. The text that keeps ringing in my mind, I think at 1 Corinthians 12, when one part of the body suffers, all suffer, right. uh, and how just how much lament is a lens for that text, uh, and I think a, an appropriate application of that. Uh, and then another, um, have you read Wide Awake yes. by Daniel? So he has a chapter yep. on lament. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It is, it is. It is a good chapter. Um, Mark, you mentioned, uh, and when will your book, When do you have a timeline, or are you like, when yeah. I get it done, I get you it done? We're hoping to have it release um, August of tw- next year, 2020. Yep. Maybe a little earlier, we'll see. All right, man. Um, and you talked to me earlier about how lament can be the voice of repentance. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So within lament, there's different kinds of uh, songs of sorrow. There's personal lament, there's corporate lament, there's something called imprecatory lament, where you're longing for justice. Um, And then there's this repentant lament, where the psalmist is crying out to God for his sins, or the case of Daniel uh, and others, where they're lamenting their national sins, Mm -hmm. sins that they may or may not have been directly involved in, but as a member of a group of people, 
um, they recognize that what happened in the past is in fact true. And so in the book, what I try to do is to distinguish between repentance and remorse. Um, By repentance, I want to preserve the rather tight definition that says, I'm going to confess and turn from wrongs that I did. So I want to, I want to express repentance for my own sins. But what if I look through the lens of history and I see that either my ancestors or people who looked like me um, committed acts and uh, did things and put things into statutes that are egregious? Do I just simply say, well, I can't repent of that which I did not do. That's theologically true, but I don't know that it's really helpful if that's all that you say. And so I think that another thing that you could do, which is like what the Southern Baptist Convention did with resolutions, other major church denominations, they've looked back to the lens of history and they've expressed remorse, said we lament the sins of the past. We acknowledge that these things happen. We disavow the sins of our ancestors. We look at those and say, that's not who we are anymore. And we acknowledge that that happened. And I think that's important because in conversations with a number of um, minority brothers, particularly African-American brothers, it's hard for them when um, white theologically oriented people are so quick to take the definition of repentance and just stop there without even thinking about how important it is to acknowledge that I didn't do that, but that happened, it was wrong, and I disavow that. Mm. And if we don't speak into that, I think it puts particularly our black brothers and sisters in a hard place of wondering, like, what what do you th- what are you thinking? Mm. Is it because you don't know? Because you don't think it was a big deal? You just don't know how to talk about it? Like, what is it? And I think that puts our brothers in a hard spot. And so I think lament is a way for us to talk about it, to both minister grace and to acknowledge, man, this happened and it was bad. And let's move on by God's grace together. So I was going to ask, so does the work stop at lament? Will you answer that already? No, it doesn't. We need to do more than that. Um, and you mentioned you mentioned a, a, a civil rights of the civil rights trip mm-hmm. uh, often we hear of mission trips and yeah. things like that I've not heard really of civil rights trips so how else are you trying to lead your church to respond to this issue to these issues yeah you mentioned people joining your church yeah yeah, yeah. so so the civil rights trip becomes uh, a, a deeply significant kind of relational moment um, and what happens like with with global vision trips is they go they see and they come back with new relationships and then they're able to leverage those relationships relationships to try and invite more people to reach unreached people groups. It's awesome. We do the same thing in some urban stuff that we do. And so the goal of that kind of trip is to help unite people's hearts together, give them an experience, think of it like a pilgrimage, and then to go back and have them talk to people who are in their relational sphere and help them understand how it impacted them and how it moved them. Um, And so relationship and proximity are really, really important. So you you can't move forward in racial reconciliation unless you're in the context of relationship and more so than just a minority person who's your diversity consultant, Mm -hmm. right? You got to be doing life with them and having, uh, you know, meals together and talking about, you know, more than just what's on the news or, you know, what to say or what not to say. Um, And then there's just, you know, to be intentional with, being sure that like in our church, um, uh, mostly white, although changing church, that that we're just going to be sure that we're 
100% committed to hospitality to folks that when they come in the door, there's a lot of speed bumps um, in terms of culture, feel, all that. And so we just want to be sure that the folks who would be inclined to quickly feel Oof, marginalized, that we go out of our way to say, we love you. We're glad you're here. So let me ask you, let me ask you then about those speed bumps. Uh, what what are some of those speed bumps? Because you don't, you don't just throw out who you are, I assume, is you're not trying to be something you're not. Uh, like you can't change this Dutchness about you. You uh, are at all. Uh, so, what are some speed bumps? I mean, like I'm, you know, we hear quick. I feel like I hear people just say, you know, uh, well, do some different songs and things like. So, what do you? What are some speed bumps you've tried to put on the road into into the door of? Well, it goes from everything from folks looking on our website. Do they see anyone who's of a different ethnicity? Um, it looks like who are the folks that are greeting at the door um, when they come into the sanctuary? Does the um, uh, people who are on platform do they reflect the diversity of our of our city? It does relate to music choice um, to be sure that we're. Um, speaking the heart language of the people who are there. It relates to applications and sermons, uh, who I quote. And if I'm going to quote Augustine, I'm going to be sure everyone knows that he was a North African theologian mm. and be sure um, that uh, folks are aware of those things. It relates to uh, the leadership composite in the context of our um, eldership, of staff, um, it, it just it, it relates to all of those things. So there's a there's not a silver bullet. None of those things in and of themselves solve the problem. Even those things don't solve the problem. What they do is they help to create a culture where racial reconciliation is possible, that it could take place in the context of loving relationships. Um, and so we've tried to create forums where people can share their experience, um, cite books that are helpful for folks to be able to read, you know, things like that. So it's, it's holistic um, and not just like, oh, just do this and that, that solves all the problems. Yeah, whenever I find that many of my white brothers and sisters, uh, some of, uh, will have a kind of fix-it mentality, like, tell me what I need to do, like, what do, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm not sure you're understanding what you're actually up against, and what you're, I think, what I'm encouraged by what you're speaking about, uh, is it's more of an expression of faithfulness, and faithfulness has a lot of different expressions, everything from the mission, the civil rights trip, uh, to change, to updating the website, these things, um, there's no off-ramp to this conversation uh, in that sense. And what we're trying to do is be faithful and help create better environments in that sense. Um, you said, so you were doing an interview uh, yesterday. You said your church doesn't look like, you're talking about the changes in the demographics of your church. But then you, yesterday I heard you say your church doesn't look like the surrounding commu community. So what do you mean and why does that matter? So if you were to draw a circle around our church, five miles, two and a half miles each way, historically our church has looked like the northern two and a half miles. So we live on the northern rim of Indianapolis, but we're close enough to the, the uh, 465 Beltway that we're we're within reach of people who are in the two and a half miles south of our church. But as a typical suburban, predominantly white mega church, our draw has historically been from the north, and so that demographic is is very white. Um, now, south of the, the church um, is a middle class area. It's not as though it's somehow urban core. The, the Indianapolis has that, and a number of our people live there. But what's interesting is it's almost fifty percent minority below our church, two and a half miles. 
And yet our church doesn't even come close to reflecting that level of diversity. So that means a couple things. It means that there's people who live that close to our church who are actually in the neighborhood of our people in our church who are not being invited to come to our church or who wouldn't consider coming to our church because of their perception of us as being uh, that that church. And so we've tried to both study that radius to think, mm, if our neighbors look like this and our neighbors are this close, should not our church at least have a better reflection of that? And so we're we're working to try and um, and change that, that the Lord would uh, would help us and to help our people to value uh, that change. Other churches who are farther out in the northern suburbs, I mean, it's almost unrealistic for them to pursue diversity because it's not in their proximity, but it is in our proximity. And I think if we don't better reflect our proximity, something's really wrong. And are you, um, are you, are you encouraging folks to move into that community? Are you guys trying to do any kind of that work or different communities, uh, urban communities? Yeah, Did I hear that, yeah, or is that yeah, just wrong? Yeah, yeah, we, we have a, there's an urban center, um, it's called Brookside, and um, it's a intensely needy area, socioeconomically. It's not um, singular in terms of its ethnic composite. It's, um, you know, there's folks from all ethnicities that have a lot of challenges. And so we've had a 11-year commitment there. We planted a church. We do a lot of stuff with education, jobs, uh, housing, uh, employment, et cetera, et cetera. And our theme in that area is we want to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. And so we want to help a woman, um, in a thing called Moms University, to um, learn about how to be a good Christ follower, how to come to Jesus. But also she needs help getting her GED she needs help getting a driver's license and getting this guy who's really making her life bad out. And how do we do that to come alongside her? So and in the context of that, people have moved into that neighborhood as well um, to try and help it without gentrifying it, to actually come in and hear the ministries that are happening in that area. And we've come alongside to say, hey, how can we help you? You're doing good work. We want to celebrate it and, you know, would financial resources people or just some encouragement help? And it's it's produced some really good fruit. So you mentioned unreached people groups earlier, yeah. uh, and yet you're mentioning this local work you do, because uh, one thing I appreciate is you're just kind of saying this. I don't know. Maybe this is part of your Dutchness. So it's kind of like, hey, this is what we're doing. As kind of matter of fact, like. Yeah, this is what we're doing. Uh, when it, to me, on one level, it sounds surprising from uh, a pastor of a predominantly white megachurch, more suburban. Right. Uh, so, uh, help. I mean, was this always like? Were you like, of course, like? So you want to reach unreached people groups? We want to reach the nations. Right. But was it always? I mean, is it obvious to you of like, yes, we're going to be showing mercy and love to these neighbors just most directly to us? And I ask because often in this conversation, I brought up one uh, retort that might uh, be brought up with the colorblind bit in Colossians 3. Uh, but another is, you know, we just need to preach the gospel. That will fix things. Uh, and then, I mean, even uh, just even at the end of Frederick Douglass's narrative, it's just amazing how Christians uh, throughout the centuries uh, were happy to do missions. And yet still racist. 100%, right. So, it's crazy awful, right? It is, yeah. So yeah. help me. So is that dichotomy clear? Like, how have you reconciled that in your mind to be about both and not necessarily one or the yeah, other? Yeah, one of the unique things about Or feel it, like you're abandoning one, one for the other. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that uh, is unique about our church is two things. Number one, we tend to be a church of both in a lot of things. So we, we tend to do 
uh, two things at once. So we have both small groups and like adult Sunday schools. We have both an aggressive uh, effort to try and reach unreached people groups, and we do urban renewal, justice, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're, we're in that to win it. We do church planting, um, and then we're, we also do neighboring, like right next door. So we can have four key things, unreached people groups, urban church planting, and, and neighboring. We're just getting ready to start um, like a community center neighboring uh, place, um, like a third place for friends to invite their neighbors to with an idea of it be a transition point to coming on a Sunday. And so we just, one of our core values, secondly, is extravagant grace. And so we're as committed to the authority of the word and the preeminence of Jesus as we are to extravagant grace. And we just think, look, there's mercy that needs to be done in this city. And we think that the gospel can be platformed by doing these things. And in the same way that um, Starbucks and a cup of coffee creates a platform to be able to have a conversation, well, so too helping a mom get her GED has the same effect um, in an area where that is in a really, really intense need. And also with folks who are really weary of the church not sticking around and helping in the long game, looking for the quick fix of the decision. And granted, that matters. It 100% matters. But we do good for gospel's sake. We don't do good for good sake. We do good for gospel's sake. So if it doesn't connect to the gospel, we can't see a path as to how this is going to create a platform, we don't do it. But if it does... We're all in. Uh, so going back to First Corinthians nine, he ends that with saying to the Hebrews that became Hebrew for the sake of Christ, right. you know, and uh, for that uh, gospel-driven mindset. Mark, last thing before we pray, uh, you talked about one thing you're trying to do is help white. Uh, just quoting you, uh, one thing you're trying to do is help white people uh, hear this conversation better uh, and stop being so fragile. And that may be a little shocking or offensive to folks. That's not what I intend, but it has been my experience both personally and my experience with my other uh, white Christians. You know, um, it's funny. I was telling somebody recently that um, my wife, um, from a very, uh, in their teenage years, began talking regularly to my sons, I have three sons, about young women that she thought they should see as both cute and also a potential sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. And so she asked them, hey, what do you think about so-and-so over there? They're kind of a cute person, girl out there. And they'd be like, mom, stop it. Wait, wait, wait. And the reason she was doing that is she wanted to help them be okay having that conversation. So she wanted to sort of train them. It's okay to talk to your mom and dad about, I think that person's kind of neat. I'd like to get to know them more. And so she began to sort of train them that it's okay to have this conversation, sort of to build up the muscle, if you will, which has really served us well, praise God, as uh, parents. Now, I think the same is true for race on the negative side of the equation, that very few um, white people have had to talk about this subject, so they're unschooled with it, um, they're unfamiliar with it, and as a result, they sort of come to it with a natural defensiveness, fragility. It's like, and I've had a lot of conversations with people like, man, don't be calling me a racist, you know, and I get it, but... in the context of all of those fears, we lose the opportunity to have the conversation. Um, In the same way that a husband should be caring for uh, his wife if she has some trauma in her past, or wife for her husband, that we, we, we can't draw the 
connection so quickly between their pain and what does this mean about me? We instead dealing with grieving people means we step into the pain and we we put down our thoughts about the implications for ourselves, um, and we consider someone else's needs as more important than our own, and we we don't ask all of the questions and and the inferences of what this could mean. We need to sit and lament and listen to what our brothers and sisters are saying. And then maybe we have the opportunity to ask the kind of questions that we need to ask, but in the right context. So I just, um, I, I find that um, I'm fragile in this conversation. And I had, I've had to get over that, and I'm still working through that. Where I just, I hate disappointing people. I hate disappointing our black brothers and sisters when I don't do enough. I hate freaking out white brothers and sisters when they think, man, where is this going? Um, but entering into this conversation, I think, is, is really important because it seems to me that Jesus wants the church to look like his bride in the book of Revelation. And you can't get there um, apart from his return without embracing a very important other-centered mindset. Thank you for that, Mark. Earlier, you mentioned extravagant grace, and it made me think of Hebrews uh, and approaching the throne of grace with confidence that we might find uh, mercy and help in our time of need. Um, so I thank you for coming and talking with me. Um, thank you. Thankful that we're leaving this interview not as strangers, as friends, uh, and also still as brothers. Uh, so as brothers, uh, we are now going to approach our Father in heaven. Uh, and I'll ask you to pray about any of the the things we've been talking about here. I think you were mentioned earlier uh, that you simply want to lament. And then I will close us in prayer. Amen. Oh, how long, oh Lord, will your church feel so divided? How long will my um, black brothers and sisters, when they come in the doors of my church, feel levels of insecurity and hurt and pain? God, how long will my white brothers and sisters feel defensive and so nervous? Lord, how long will the enemy have his um, stranglehold on this issue, making it so hard for us to talk about and words that are so easily misunderstood. Meanwhile, the bride of Christ is not functioning in a way in which you seem to have intended. God, we turn to you with hearts broken because of misunderstanding and um, hurts that are just layered upon layers upon layers. So God, we, we call upon you to make your church one. We ask you to help us, oh Jesus, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We pray that um, Lord, both our minority brothers would, and sisters would pour out their hearts when they are wounded and hurt and with confidence would continue to lean into the conversation that our white brothers and sisters would embrace the beautiful image of what it means to be one in Christ and what it means to consider others as more important than themselves. And Jesus, we trust that at the end of the day, you are the one who can bring change of hearts. You're the one who can bring ultimate unity. You're the one that can heal historic divisions, and you're the one that can take beauty and make it beautiful out of ashes. So we ask you to do that and help us to trust you while we wait. Help us to be good lamenters as we are stuck right now between this hard life and waiting for your goodness. So help your churches to be vibrant places where trusting people lean into relationship and choose to love each other. So God, thank you for our hope in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.
Father, we do thank you for our hope in Christ. That Mark and I talk uh, and we pray, Lord, not as those who have no hope, but as those who have a great hope. That because Christ Jesus is alive, one day racism will be dead. Mm. Father, we give you praise and thanks for that. And yet, Lord, we're, some days the, that, that day when Christ comes again feels so far off and we groan. As the creations groan, we groan. And yet, Father, some of us even praying and thinking and listening now haven't been groaning that much in this conversation. So, Lord, would you help us to groan as we should? Would you help us to not shame those who are groaning? Would you help us to groan with hope? Would you help us to direct our laments, as Mark talked about earlier? Father, we pray even for the work Mark is doing. Lord, we pray for the work College Park is doing. We thank you for your faithfulness to that congregation. Father, we do pray uh, that more GEDs would be earned and that more communities would be helped. Father, we pray that more unreached people groups would be reached, Father, because of their witness. We pray, Father, that we would be people of both, insofar as we are people of your gospel and people of mercy and justice. Father, we pray that we would rely upon you in all of this and do it for your name's sake, not for diversity's sake, Lord. We're not in this for diversity's sake, Lord. We're not simply uh, wanting this because, oh, heaven looks diverse, because, Lord, we know that hell is diverse too. But, Lord, for your name's sake, we lament, we ask, we pray, Father, help us to do more than prayer, Lord. Sometimes uh, it can seem so easy to check off a box. I did my, uh, we did our prayer, Lord. Uh, but Lord, we know that Daniel was a man of much more than just prayer. So Father, help us to be like Daniel. Help us to be like Hannah who prayed. Hannah who lamented. Daniel, who lamented, help us to not have ungodly fear of what we might be called, but to fear you who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark, thank you so much for joining me, brother. Uh, I have no idea how to spell your last name. So if people want to find you, what do they do? They should come to College Park Church and find me up front after a morning service. No. Uh, what they should do besides that, they could look online. Uh, last name is spelled V-R-O-E-G-O-P. So I do a little bit of blogging every once in a while at markvrogup.com. Or you can follow me on all of my social media handles on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's what's up. Now we know where people can find you. <laughs> and uh, last question. Are, the, are you an NBA fan? NBA fan, yeah. uh, like Pacers. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, you got, if you're in Indiana, you got to be a Pacers fan. It's part of the part of the deal. Part so. of the deal. All yeah. right, man. Hey, brother, thanks so much for joining us. Grace and peace. You're listening to United We Pray. You can check out articles on our website. That's new as of this season. We're looking. We uh, we're looking forward to more episodes, and we're thankful to hear about lament in Indiana. Thanks, brother. All right, bro. thank you. Go.